Welcome to the Midweek Bible Study with Ben Schaefer, the podcast where we dive deep into the timeless wisdom of Scripture, one verse at a time. I'm your host, Ben Schaefer, and I'm thrilled to have you join on our journey through the pages of the Bible. We are currently studying the fifth book in the New Testament called The Acts of the Apostles. So grab your Bible, something to write with, and let's get started. Oh, gracious, wonderful, amazing God, thank you for your your presence with us today. I just want to pause and recognize the fact that there's really no mental ascent that that a man could do or a woman or a person could do without any for, any interaction with you, any anything with you, have, having not to do with you, I want nothing to do with today. I want you to do it. I want you to take what the words I say and and make them yours. Um, and Lord, if I if I as a broken vessel uh, misspeak or not deliver the the words that you would like me to give, um, Lord, I pray that you would even bless uh that and that you would you would somehow let it land in the listener's ears as appropriately as your spirit deems fit thank you for the participants in this class this course this journey through the book of acts i have no idea i don't i don't have uh, the 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 lever to pull to bring people here but you do it's called your spirit and i thank you for those who are pushing in and and taking advantage of the preparation and the work and the scholarship uh, and, and the time to present the material. I just appreciate that. Thank you for uh, what you're doing in this group. I ask for it to continue to go and grow. We put our trust and faith in you. Help us see what's going on this week in the book of Acts. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So good to see each and every one of you. Good to see you guys on Zoom. Great to see you guys in person. It's really cold here in Nebraska. Thank you so much for, uh, you know, not dying in the frigid temperatures and coming to study the Bible with me today. Today we're in Acts chapter 7. It's the second part of Stephen's narrative, his story, if you will. Last week we left off with a with a kind of tantalizing snippet of the first part of Stephen's uh, journey, his story about the issue with feeding the widows. And he was placed in a, in a leadership position appropriately to handle some serious needs that were arising from the huge number of Christians who were gathering and, and growing in that day. But today, this afternoon, uh, we take a look at his defense and the charges that were brought against him. You know, the people didn't really like what they heard. And, it, it, and as just aside, an aside, you listen to what we're about ready to, to read, and I want you guys to to really notice something: how how amazingly smart this man is, how amazingly gracious he is, and respectful and honoring, and he's he kind of seems like a nice guy. Doesn't it seem odd that he would be met with such murderous threats here in a little bit? You're going to see. And if you if you've never met Stephen, you've never met him in Scripture, you don't know anything about it, man. I hope that by the time you're done with this, 
you will. Um, so Stephen was called to speak for himself and give a defense for the naughty things that he did in the face and the eyes of the, the Sanhedrin and the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So do you remember Gamaliel? A guy named Gamaliel, he, he gave a warning to the Sanhedrin saying, you know, if you're going to fight against a man of God, you're going to fight against God. So he said that, but by this time, it's been long forgotten. Because look what's happening. They're going straight after him. So that's in the rearview mirror. They forgot about Gamaliel's wise words. Let's just, let's just forget about that. We're angry. We're going to have Stephen step up and speak for himself. Give yourself, give an example, give, give a testament to what you're talking about. So Stephen's discourse is what we're going to look at today. Discourse is just a long version of a speech. It's another way of say, saying Stephen's speech in, in front of people who wanted to indict him. So we're going to see a, a very specific key things that he says in this, this discourse. And it's one of the most famous in Scripture. To me, I don't know in my study of Scripture, among theologians and Bible scholars, you, you go to this text for so many things because of how amazing of a job he did describing the gospel. But he basically forms a very unconventional defense in his discourse, though it's very powerful. It's very powerful. Specifically, there's a little, there's a little test. Last week, how many people, or you know, maybe those of you who are listening, do you remember last session, what were the two specific charges brought up against Stephen? Bible trivia time. Anything? Yes, Nate. That he was speaking against the temple. The temple. Yep. And then what? The law. The law. Yep. Yep. Anything else? There's one. That's one. What's the other one? That's it. Blasphemy. They called it. Speaking against God and Moses. So those two things. Speaking against God and Moses. Oh, don't you do that. Number two, speaking against the actual temple itself. That was actually an offense in the Jewish quarter for death. If you were accused of speaking against the temple, you're, you're um, accused of death. Uh, you're facing the death penalty. So it essentially, he takes this stab at uh, launching into this crazy, powerful, unconventional defense of those two things, the temple and uh, the speak the blasphemy against God. Uh, by going back in time, he takes a little history, you know, like in those cartoons where they do like, oh, wait, I have a flashback happening, and the place goes fuzzy, and all of a sudden you're back in the history of, of America or whatever you might say. See, well, this is what he does. He tries to do with the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees. Let's take a little trip back to where it all started, shall we? This is essentially what he says. And so he highlights the highlights of point, the high points of Israel's history. Now, it looks like it's going to be a lot of, uh, it, 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 at first glance, it seems to be a long speech without relevance to the charges that are, that are heaped up against them. Really. I mean, I'd be like, wait, bro, we're, we're going to kill you. What you talking about history for? 
you know, that you would just kind of almost be offended right there. Like, are you an idiot? You know? Um, so all of a sudden you realize, oh my goodness, he is providing a very solid defense. So first, it accomplishes all of these things uh, simultaneously. And the first thing that it does, he defends the specific charge charges leveled against him, which were uh, by the false prophet or the false witness, which is blaspheming God and Moses and speaking against the temple. Secondly, Stephen demonstrates that God's plan has followed a regular pattern, like a pattern. It just goes like this and then like this. And he wants the Israel, the nation of Israel, the leadership that's that's coming down on him right now, to see this pattern. So guess what we're going to do? We're going to see that pattern today. If you walk out of here not understanding the pattern, I've done a bad job. So what's this pattern all about? Well, here's a, here's a quick spoiler alert. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's the pattern of Jesus picturing Christ himself clear back in the old days, before Christ, before the new covenant, before lots and lots of stories that you read in the Old Testament even happen, starting with our man Abraham and going all the way to Moses, he lays out the picture of Christ. The picture of Christ. It's there, everybody. Did you know the Old Testament isn't about the Old Testament? <laughs> the Old Testament is testifying about Christ. That's it. The entire Bible's about Christ. And the story of Jesus is merely the continuation of the record established in the Old Testament. This is what Stephen's saying. And then the third thing his speech accomplishes, last but not least, he takes an opportunity to show where the religion, this is where, this is where the wheels, to me, fall off of me being putting myself in his shoes. Now I can get in front of, I can get in front of uh, people like that and, and make a defense for myself. But here's what the last thing he does. He indicts them. He levels charges against them. He actually lays very articulate, very articulate man. He lays it out before them as to where they had distorted and misused God's word or Israel's customs. Woo! Wow. So here's the two things that he indicts them for. Failing to recognize the truth. And then persecuting the saints. Yikes. Recognizing the truth, you guys didn't do it. And then you're persecuting God's people. So pretty gutsy, don't you think? I mean, I don't know the last time I was in front of a judge. I don't think I have ever been, and it's my goal never to be in front of a judge. But I certainly wouldn't turn the tables. I wonder how that would come, uh, how that would, how that would, uh, you know, come out, uh, play out, if I said, "Thanks, judge." Now, now I would like to uh, flip the script and uh, give you an indictment of uh, some things that you've done wrong. Let's just see how that plays out, shall we? Well, it wouldn't work out very well. Well, this is exactly what Stephen does. So without any further ado, let's jump right into chapter 7, verse... Oh, man, my screen went black. Verse 1 to 8. Somebody read it nice and loud for me, would you? 
Then the high priest asked Stephen, are these charges true? To this he replied, brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. After the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even enough ground to set his foot on. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land, even though at that time Abraham had no child. God spoke to him in this way. For 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And afterward, they would come out of that country and worship me in this place. Then he gave Abraham the covenant of circumcision, and Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him eight days after his birth. Later, Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob became the father of the 12 patriarchs. History 101. He just laid it out there. I don't know if I could do that good of a job on the history of America. George Washington, you know, I couldn't do that. I'm not that good. I couldn't even articulate that. Look how articulate this man is. So Stephen begins with a recap of the patriarchal period, it's called. The Bible scholars call it patriarchal period. It's the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the entire history of Israel. And this testimony Stephen gets, gives is a response to the charges of the blasphemy side, okay? He's addressing the blasphemy charge. Hey, you, you spoke against God. You spoke against uh, Moses. I can't, we can't put up with this. This is this, uh, this is the area where he's addressing that specific uh, charge. So, uh, though the technical definition of that charge is to speak the name of God, Stephen cont contests, uh, I'm sorry, consents to the broader meaning of the charges. This is a blasphemy back in the day. Blaspheming God was actually just saying his name. Well, he understands that's not what they're saying. They're ticked off. They're, they're, they're so ticked off that, the, that you would even attempt to address us in an, authority, an authoritative way about God, Yahweh. So he defends himself against the suggestion that he has diminished God's nature or character in any way, not just his name. So he's retelling the Abrahamic story, the story of Abraham, because it reflects a high view, follow me on this one, it reflects a high view of God as a promise-keeping God. So you see where Stephen's going here? Saying, the patriarch of patriarchs, you guys know Abraham. Well, he's about, he's laying it down that there is no not keeping promises with God. Promises are kept by God, period. It just might not look the way you think it might look. So it pays proper, he's paying proper props. <laughs> he's paying proper respect to the ways God's glory was established through the patriarchs of Israel. You know what I'm saying? Like he's giving props where props are due. He's not coming in there all offensive, dissing the patriarchs of Israel. That's pretty respectful of them. Now, look, let's look at the subtle jab that Stephen takes at the Sanhedrin. Does anybody see it? He mentions that Abraham had been called and given a promise inside the land. 
Nope. Outside the land. Did you guys pick that up? He specifically says to the Pharisees and the Jews listening and the, the whole crowd, hey, y'all, uh, did you remember that Abraham was called by God outside of the land of Israel? Hello. <laughs> uh, the Pharisees and all the Jews place this excessive importance, guys. We don't have this in our culture. But they have this intense and excessive, over-realized importance on living in the land itself. One of the reasons they probably chose Stephen to persecute was that he was a Jew that did not live in the land. You remember me? Uh, do you know? Do you know what that word is? Hellenistic Jew. He spoke Greek, so you can even imagine that set a log of uh, on the fire of of hatred towards this man. How dare you? How dare you talk about God that way? Well, Stephen's just making a point. Well, Abraham. Our patriarch, the man who started this whole thing, he wasn't even in this land. So why are you guys making a big deal out of it? So here Stephen counters that notion by pointing out that God was working with Abraham, a man who came from outside the land. I want you guys to check this out. This is just a little commentary from yours truly. But here's, here's what, I'll, what I'll tell you. Something hit me when I was reading this, and it's addressing the issue of favor, okay? God's favor. This is, this is, I'll just read what I wrote down. God's favor is the result of a call and obedient faith, not a result of birthplace or family line. Say it again. God's favor, in other words, is the result of a call and of obedient faith and obedient faith, not a result of birthplace or family line. If you're listening to me right now, I know that might be sound odd to you, but when I say family and 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 a family or birthplace, this is a very specific situation for many many hearers of me right now. Namely, what were you raised a certain way? Were you born in a certain place? Did you go to certain places? This is a lot of times what we nonchalantly associate our faith with. Well, let me just clear this up. God does not play favor games based upon, well, he doesn't play favor games, period. He only will favor as a result of his initiating the call and your obedience in faith. It will not dictate whether or not favor is on someone based upon your lineage. Do you see why this might be contradictory to a Jew? who's listening to Mr. Stephen right now, because they legit think they will be welcome into heaven because they are Jewish. Do you see this? So I digress. Another jab he comes at in the form of a promise of the promised inheritance. This promise to Abraham was for an inheritance that Abraham never personally will receive in his lifetime. You guys ever realize that? I mean, maybe you learned it as a kid, you know, in Sunday school class. But Abraham had faith in God, in his promises, beyond death. 
I hope that resonates with you right now, that it's not always that God's promises are supposed to be realized in this life, in your specific here and now. But yet, faith says it will. That's the whole promise of Christianity, that we will receive redemption and resurrection. This is the promise of God that he makes good on. So Stephen demonstrates that the fulfillment of that promise wasn't supposed to be found in this land of Palestine, at least not in this present form. But later, and we're still waiting now, aren't we? And the people listening are seriously inflamed now. You know, they're going, what are you talking about? So now look at this pattern. I want us to look for this pattern. I mentioned this earlier. In these events that form this repeating framework, if you will. It's a framework for the entire discourse that I want to point out. Here it is. There's two stages that I want to point out. A man of God ch choosing is shown in two stages. Stages, excuse me. The first stage is the man God chooses is seen falling short of a supposed goal. Don't, don't am I aren't I right here? You know, it's not it's not uh, science. Every single Old Testament, uh, specifically Abraham, for example, starts with a man that God chooses dropping the ball, as they say. Think about it. David, Solomon, Saul, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Adam. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on and on. Moses. But yet there's the second stage that Stephen is trying to show us into the, uh, the hearers of this discourse. Only to be shown later reaching that very goal that they failed to reach. They will be reaching that goal in a better way. Man's way, God's way. That's as simple as I can say it. There's this, there's this stage. Man falls, man uh, realizes. This pattern repeats over this discourse to suggest that Jesus, there he is, that Jesus' life is the real deal model for this pattern. Do you see what I'm talking about? For example, let's go back to Abraham. Abraham, he's the chosen man of God and sent to a foreign land. But in that land, he doesn't receive the full inheritance he was promised, does he? That's a very key thing to think about and dwell on. Instead, he produces offspring that becomes a family and a nation. Then he dies. He barely even sees any kind of hope, physical hope, that God is making good on his promises. Am I right? Like, if I'm like just looking for proof, if he's actually practicing what he's preaching, like, you're going to make me a great nation? Well, all I see is some sheep. What you talking about? As soon as he's gone, years and years later, people are going, oh, God was right. And he's keeping his promises. But through a covenant, Abraham 
and God strike a covenant. Abraham is promised by God to receive this inheritance in a future day. Isn't he? Not only does this pattern begin to suggest Christ's own life, may I add, but Abraham's story itself serves as an important, uh, what's the word, prerequisite for Christ's coming. The Abrahamic covenant, there's a big word, it's a suzerainty covenant. That's a, it's a big theologian word. But a suzerainty covenant is a covenant that says, I'm going to make good on my promises, even though I know darn well that the person I'm striking this covenant with is going to fail miserably. And by the way, suzerainty covenant, that's the Greek, that's the actual, uh, what, what this covenant is uh, in, in uh, government terms. It actually says for eternity, there's no day where it's actually going to stop. Not only does this pattern, this pattern suggest Christ's own life, what I'm trying to get you guys to see is that this Abrahamic covenant is the out is the beginning of the Messiah's covenant uh, promise. That Jesus is the fulfillment, the beginning of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Why am I saying that? Because that's what Stephen's saying to these people. I didn't just make this up. This is what Stephen's saying. You know that guy you murdered? He's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Whoa, that would have been igniting my hair on fire if I'm a Pharisee. So let me just say a little quick note. Um, well, let me just let me just let me just read something that Paul wrote to the Galatian church. Galatians 3:16. It says this. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Hold on to that. He does not say, and to seeds, with an S, as referring to many, but rather to uno. And to your seed, that is, he says it, Christ. And then on 29, it says, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, <laughs> heirs, according to promise man christianity i don't know if you guys don't follow me on this one but do you know that christianity yeah i got my arms going now christianity is all about a promise keeping god do you believe it or not i mean you guys might be amazing religious people but do you actually believe god's god's actually going to do what he said he's going to do so let me just take a quick little historic break for a second and talk about a literary problem here. Did you guys notice something? I'm sure you didn't because just right here in the Bible study, you're probably not going to see this. But let me just point out something in verse 4. We got a problem. We got a problem with the text. Um, my NASB, your NIV, your King James, I don't, I don't really know what you're reading right now, but I promise you, you have a discrepancy between what you're reading and what is actually in the Old Testament. And it is befuddled hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of theologians for years. And to be honest, Christians love fighting about this stuff. And it's ridiculous. But I think it's interesting to note, so I thought I would spend one second noting some discrepancy. Here's something to note. 
that when you see in Scripture in chapter 7, verses 1 through 8, and you see the quotes where Stephen is quoting Scripture, what kind of Scripture is he quoting? What version of Scripture? Who wrote it? What language? Does anybody know? Yeah, Hebrew. Wrong. Oh. Greek. It's the Septuagint. It's the Septuagint Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible that he has memorized. Why? Because he's a Hellenistic Greek-speaking Jew. Okay, think about this. Now, back in the old uh, Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew uh, Masoretic text, there was the Hebrew version and the Hebrew version alone. But all of a sudden, the Hellenistic Jews couldn't speak Hebrew, couldn't read Hebrew, so there had to be something done. So the, the Israel, nation of Israel was gracious enough to have the rabbinical law uh, placed to make a council of people to produce this version of the Hebrew Bible called the Septuagint. If you guys have Greek, if you have like uh, Bible software, just look it up. Add that version. It's called the Septuagint. It's Greek. It's a literal Greek translation from the Hebrew. Problem is, guys, it's not the original text. And there's some Greek words that, as you guys probably know, Hebrew doesn't have some of those Greek words. There's actually a huge uh, correlation between those who followed the Septuagint and those who read strictly Hebrew, you know what they're like? You guys got, uh, in your lifetime, it's like, just like this. The guy who strictly li reads living the, living, uh, the New Living Translation and the hardcore King James guy. The guy that reads King James thinks it's her heresy to, to read the Living Translation. And the guy that reads Living Translations thinks it's a bunch of hogwash to read King James. You guys know what I'm talking about. If you've been in church long enough, you guys got your own opinions. I know you do. I know you do. And you guys got this, this view that says, well, you know, this, this is the right translation. Well, hold on. Put yourself in Stephen's shoes and put yourself in the Pharisee's shoes. If you all of a sudden heard someone giving you a lecture and quoting the 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 translation of scripture that you think is her heretical, what would be your response? You'd dismiss it, wouldn't you? So do you see that this is actually him quoting the Septuagint to these Hebrew reading, Hebrew speaking, hardcore Pharisees? So this cannot be read just on its face. You have to know that emotion. You have to feel that because otherwise you'll miss the offense. So here's one of just one of the problems with what Stephen said. And I'm just going to give you one, okay? There's a discrepancy that's apparent in the text between Stephen's statement and other texts, such as it, uh, Isaiah, <clears throat> Isaiah 66, 1 through 2. There's the, here's the discrepancy. Is Abraham's father's father died in Haran before Abraham left for the land. But the problem comes because the age that's actually recorded uh, it, of Haran at death would seem to, to be too old. It'd be too old to, uh, given Haran's death. 
and his age when he was said to have become a father of Abraham and his brothers back in Ur. Well, here's the, here's the cool thing that you can rest in. Every single discrepancy is completely provable. And I would love to do that. I just don't have time. But here's one example. Is that you and me and many, many others have assumed that Abraham was the firstborn. Not the case. The confusion comes because we assume Abraham was the firstborn in Haran's family. This is because he's mentioned first. We don't have proof. So if you actually put him into the third or the fourth son, everything makes sense. It's just one little situation that has befuddled so many people through the ages, and it starts with understanding that he's coming at it from a Greek-speaking Septuagint translation. Moving on. Can I move on? Here we go. Verse 9 through 15. I'm sorry, 16. Can somebody read aloud? Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So Pharaoh made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. When Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our forefathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt where he and our ancestors died. Their bodies were brought back to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought from the son of Hamar at Shechem for a certain sum of money. Great. So now we're, who, who's in the lens now? We turn from Abraham to who? Joseph. In this section, Stephen continues to develop the story of Jesus as reflected in the lives and circumstances of the Old Testament. Now he focuses on Joseph. The first time Joseph was called to lead his family, his brothers rejected him and became jealous. Sound familiar? Yet God was with him, it says. Sound familiar? <laughs> Stephen's subtle point is that rejection by men doesn't meet, oh man, I, maybe this hit you guys, will hit you guys differently than it hits me. But I needed to hear this, this truth that popped out, this truth bomb, is that Stephen makes this point, that rejection by men, aka Israel, men of Israel, doesn't mean God is also rejecting the person, the chosen. Don't don't move on unless you're ready after that one. That one really I needed to hear today. Eventually, God raises Joseph up and restored him. Sound familiar? I'm going to say this over and over. Right? Yeah, yeah. Tradition is God. Yes, yes. I'm being sarcastic, listener. Um, and. And now Stephen adds a new detail to the comparison. The family of Israel is struck by famine and stress and trial back in the land. This account is a perfect parallel with who? 
I mean, who who are we talking about right now? Joseph or Jesus? It's hard to tell because they're so similar. Joseph is Jesus pictured for you and me. The entire thing. The, his brothers, a.k.a. Israel, rejected him. This account offers that perfect parallel of Christ's experience with the nation of Israel. His appearance once, he appeared once, and then comes to rule over them, and his brother Israel boots them, rejects them. While he is away, in fact, he, they, they even placed him in a pit. While he is away, the father exalts the son to great power and authority. And Israel is suffering under dispersion and persecution and slavery once again. Isn't, aren't they? Then under stress, the nation will appeal to Jesus for protection. Oh, you guys, oh, I get all giddy thinking about this one. Zechariah 12 through 14. You guys should go read that. <laughs> the, you know when they're going to appeal to Jesus for protection? Do you see them doing that right now? No. It's it's not ready. It's not it's not time. Do you know when they do that? According to scripture, very soon. In the middle at the end of the middle of tribulation. They cry out and confess Christ as their Messiah and it turns everything around. And Jesus will return for them and invite all of Israel to become a part of his kingdom. Why? Because he told Abraham that he would. And here again, Stephen emphasizes that God's blessings occurred outside of the land that they returned. It's again making a point. Why are you guys making such a big deal out of something that's not a big deal? It's another jab at the Sanhedrin that valued the land over the Messiah. Let me say that again. Did you see this, that the Sanhedrin valued the land more than Messiah himself? I'm going to read this for the lack of time, but here it is, 17 through 29. Join with me, will you? But as the time of the promise was approaching, which God has assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of the race and mistreated our fathers so that they would expose their infants and they would not survive. It was at this time that Moses, here he is, was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learnings of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power and words and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered his mind to visit his brethren and the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. On the following day, he appeared to them as they were fighting together, and he tried to reconcile them in peace, saying, Men, you are brethren. Did you see Christ saying this? You are brethren. You're my brothers. Why do you injure one another? But the one who was injuring his neighbor pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? 
I want to say, God did. <laughs> you do not mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptians yesterday, do you? At this remark, Moses fled and became an alien in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Sound familiar? Now Stephen turns to Moses, and in the process, he'll defend himself to the charge that he was blaspheming God. The entire account of Moses is respectful. He didn't diss anybody. He gives Moses the proper dignity. Do you notice that? And now Moses takes the role of the forerunner of Jesus himself. Like with Joseph, Moses is a man sent to God to deliver, to deliver the Jews. This is an obvious, I don't know if you see, I, I hope you see this, obvious parallel with Jesus. Obvious. I mean, all the way from Mary, I mean, a surrogate mother. Several of the things Stephen says about Moses are similar to the things in the gospel concerning Jesus. Here's what I'm going to mention. Stephen begins by reminding the leaders of Israel that God's promises promised the nation would be oppressed. He actually promised that. So when the time of, for the promise arrived, they entered slavery. You ever think about that? He actually promised slavery. Promised bad times. During this time, the nation of, of, of Jews was under oppression at the hands of evil leaders. And in the midst of the experience, that experience, God raised up a deliverer for them. And that deliverer first came as a child with a unique background. He was raised by a surrogate family. Hope that's ringing a bell. And the age of 40, Moses takes note that the, of, the, of the terrible situation his people are in, slavery, and begins to defend them. And at that time, Stephen tells us that Moses anticipated that his actions would be met with gladness by his fellow Jews. He literally thought he was going to go in there and they're going to go, thank you, you're our Messiah. But what happens? They reject him. And they ruler they reject him not just as a an idiot or a or a buffoon. They reject him as a ruler and judge or, over them. Having been rejected, Moses fled to the desert to produce sons. All this prefigures Christ first coming to deliver Israel. He is currently producing more sons. <laughs> It also demonstrates that Israel has commonly rejected what God has offered. This is a highlight of what his discourse is saying. Let's read on. Verse 30. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in the flame of the burning thorn bush. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight and he approached to look more closely there. And there came a voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses shook with fear and would not venture to look. But the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Verse 34, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt, and I have heard their groans, and I have come down to rescue them. Come now, and I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom you disowned, Stephen said, saying, Who made you a ruler and my judge? is the one who God sent to both a ruler and a deliverer, at, to be both ruler and deliverer, with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs of the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness of the 40 years. This is the Moses, this Moses, who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise for you 
a prophet like me from the brethren. Moses pointed to Jesus. When it came time for Moses to return, God appeared to him. Notice again the reverence that he speaks about Moses. The charge of blasphemy against Moses is effectively denied here as Stephen gives a proper and respectful testimony concerning concerning Moses. If you're an Israelite, if you're a, a, a Pharisee, you can't deny what he just said. Secondly, Stephen continues to show the physical land was not the, not the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel. The land is not the deal. Jesus is. The call to Moses took place outside the land. Again. Did you see that? In fact, the land is counted holy simply because God is in the land. Not because it's the land. It's because God's in the land. Further indictment of the Jewish leaders who had made the land of Israel their God, lowercase g. And now the men previously rejected by the nation of Israel becomes their appointed deliverer. Guys, I hope you guys are seeing this pattern. Once rejected and later received. Rejected, later received. Is the model that Moses provides and Jesus fulfills in that last discourse. Once rejected, later received. Rather than Stephen speaking against Moses, it was the Sanhedrin who was. You see how he flipped the script? But even after their deliverance, the nation continues to disobey. It's just the same thing over and over and over again. Stephen emphasizes that the giving of the law didn't change their hearts. The people of Israel have always violated their own laws. I'm not done reading. Here we go. 38. Coming down to the end. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him at Mount Sinai and whom and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles. I want you to hold on to that. To pass on to you. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. For this Moses who led us out of, of the land of Egypt, we do not know what happened to him. At that time they made a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idols and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and delivered them to serve the host of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you offered victims and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness, was it, O house of Israel? You also took along the tabernacle of Moloch, whoa, and the star of the god of Rampha, yikes. The images which you made to worship, I also will remove you beyond Babylon. That's some pretty... Pretty harsh words right there. Stephen is now addressing the charge of speaking against the law that they told him. Rather than speak against the law, Stephen upholds the law, giving scripture evidence called living oracles. That's the first time we've ever seen that phrase in scripture. Living oracles. They are living because they are a manifestation of God in Christ. The Word. They are living because they call men to a new relationship with God. That's what we're studying today. In contrast to the adoration for the living word, Stephen speaks against the people's disobedience. You see that? He brings up both. Juxtaposition. Contrast. 
They were unwilling to be obedient to God and turn their backs on Him. Here's another obvious jab at the leaders of Israel who were unwilling to be obedient to the living oracles in their day. They're just they're unwilling to be obedient to the gospel. Their disobedience was instigated by Jewish leaders, Aaron, their high priest, who led them into idol worship. Do you see that connection? Aaron was the first high priest, and he's saying, your leader, Aaron, dropped the ball. In fact, Stephen reveals that while the nation wandered in the desert, they continued to engage in idol worship with Moloch. Moloch was a demon uh, idol that you'd sacrifice children to on a hot plate. It's really gr gruesome worship stuff. By comparison, Stephen implies that it wasn't he who spoke against the law. It was the Jewish leader. See how he's flipping it? Acts 44, 744. Let's hear it. Here it is. Our fathers had the tabernacle of testimony in the wilderness just as he spoke to Moses, directed him to make it according to the pattern which he had seen. It's important. And having received it in their turn, our fathers brought it to it, it brought it in with Joshua upon dispossessing, dispossessing the nation whom God drove out before the fathers until the time of David. David found favor in God's sight and asked that he might find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him, uh, Stephen said. However, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands. Yikes! As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool and my feet. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what place is there for my, my repose? Was it not my hand which made all things? The final charge was that Stephen had spoken against the holy place or the temple. But Stephen flipped the script on that too, didn't he? He'd probably been charged with dishonoring the temple because he'd preached on the insignificance of that building right there. It's insignificant. Here's the sum. And let me sum this up. The only reason it was significant is because it's a copy of the real deal. And he actually even mentioned, do you see this? How the first tabernacle wasn't even a building. It was a tent. It was a camping tent. And he was saying the only reason it was significant is because it was built to the specifications that God told us to. By the way, it's not the original. It's a copy. Maybe you didn't know that. Maybe this is new time, first time you've ever knew, known this. But did you know the temple that God actually had the Israelites build? was just a copy of what's in the heavenly tabernacle right now. It's a copy. It's a specific copy. There's measurements. There's exact measurements. It's supposed to be gazed upon and seen as not the original, but a glimpse, just like Jesus. We're supposed to look upon Christ and remember God's faithfulness to give us a means of righteousness. So this is what Stephen's saying. He's saying the same thing the author of Hebrews is saying. It reminds them that the Sanhedrin, that even the first tabernacle was not special. God isn't contained in a box. You can't put God in a box. David asked God for the privilege of building a permanent structure in honor for the Lord. Guess what he said? Uh, yeah, I guess, but you're not going to do it. Your son's going to do it. And guess what? It ruined him. God actually let David in on a little secret and that is you don't put god in a box 
He even let his son uh, uh, build this temple only to realize that it's still the truth. God doesn't, he can't live in a box. So in Acts 7.51, you men, he says, who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Let me ask you that. You can hear him say that. They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayed and murderers you have now become. And you and you who receive the law as ordained by angels and yet don't keep it. Finally, Stephen brings dis this discourse to a conclusion by applying all the lessons to his audience. They are repeating the sins of their fathers, 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 fathers. They are uncircumcised in the heart, which is to say, you're not believers. You're not a believer, he said. The use of uncircumcision in this picture is the saving work of the Spirit in the heart, eventually becoming one of Paul's favorite ways of communicating, by the way. So here he is, Stephen, talking about, is talking about this last thing. And he mentions a, a man named Paul, doesn't he? Let's just go, let me just read the rest of it. 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. Quick note, cutting to the quick literally means to be cut in half. And then gnashing their teeth, you know what that means? I can't do it because my teeth are so crooked. But it's to slap your teeth together like this, really loudly. And back in those days, if a whole group of men were doing that, it was haunting. Ugh. I can just, it's gross. And they were they were literally cut to the quick. Literally cut in half. Here it is. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him, and the witnesses lay aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Let me finish this off as fast as possible. The Sanhedrin erupt in anger. They're cut in half. Literally, they're so angry. They gnash in their teeth. Interesting, real quick, Stephen doesn't mention Jesus until this point. Did you notice that? Until he actually sees him. Interesting enough, Stephen doesn't understand that the only the, the vision that the Holy Spirit's giving him of Jesus standing at the right hand of God is actually just for him. Nobody else can see him. Interesting, it, it virtually makes no, he makes no mention of Jesus until he sees him. Peter is known as the apostle who is reluctant to put out the aside and the custom of Israel. Paul is the apostle anointed to clearly demonstrate the new, the new has replaced the old. And here Stephen is the first one among the brethren to preach this new dispensation with both of them listening. Both of them, Peter and Paul listening to what he's saying. While this eruption is taking place, Stephen is calmed and encouraged by a heavenly vision 
granted to him alone. He sees Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. Psalms 110, write that down, read it. He sees the, that Psalms 110 is happening, and he thinks it's the moment. Psalms 110 is going to be a moment that we all will experience, by the way. Later, the New Testament scripture confirms this, but Stephen's vision is only of manifestation, no, is the only made manifestation known in the New Testament of this nature. Stephen alone sees what the scripture tells us is true. When the Messiah is seen next to the Father, he may be described at, at times as seated or as standing. Seated or standing. What's the difference? Can anybody tell me? What do you think it is? What's the difference between a Jesus who is sitting and a Jesus who's standing? Respect. That's a good one. Yep. It, in the kings, in kings speak, when a king or a servant even stands, he's getting ready to act. When he sits, he's complete. He's finished. That's why kings would rise when they're about to make a proclamation. They rise off of their throne when they're going to make a judgment call. Here's Jesus, the king of all creation, standing. Ooh, I get goosebumps. Think about that. Stephen looks at Jesus and goes, Jesus, I, I, I see you standing at the right hand of God, just like Psalms 110 says. And Jesus is standing. So Jesus is finished the work of redemption, but if he's seen to be standing, it reflects his ongoing work to build and guide and protect the church. See, he just he already conquered death. Now he's sitting at the right hand of God, where he's at today. But here, Jesus is seen standing because of his work in that moment to guide Stephen's speech and reassure Stephen that Jesus is directing the outcome, brothers and sisters. I hope you just heard me say that because so it is with you. Stephen was confessing Christ before men, and the vision reminds him that Jesus keeps his promises to confess Stephen's name before the Father. Whoa! Brothers and sisters, do you believe that? That if you confess Christ, that Christ will confess you before the Father? As Stephen gazes at this incredible sight, he's completely distracted away from the pain and even tries to share it with everybody. But no one else sees the vision. And it's, it's interesting that it's probably normal to say, and obvious and logical to say, that he fell asleep before any pain. Why? Because it notes, Luke notes that he fell to his knees. So it's very, very apparent to me that God granted him his prayer in that moment. Let me, let me go. I'm ready. And he fell to his knees and the crushing blows of the rocks were not the cause of death. It's a pretty encouraging note to me to end on today. That Jesus himself stands at the right hand of the Father, guiding, protecting, moving, guiding the church. He's acting still. He's not finished. It's an amazing truth. Let's read. the. Uh, here's a couple reflection questions. In the text we covered today, were you able to see the Messiah pictured in any of the events Stephen recounted? I hope you did. Otherwise, I failed miserably. Number two, what is God's 
favored based on. Remember me saying that? It's not based upon lineage. It's not based upon religion. It's not based upon your bloodline or where you live. Number three, what does the recounting of the events of Israel and its patriarchs tell you about who Jesus is? Because really, that's really what it's all about. It's not about a mental ascent, guys. It's not about an intellectual exercise here in this Bible study. It's about finding Christ every single time, because that's what this whole thing's about. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for these men and women who devote their time, their lunch hour over, uh, over and over again to the study of God's word. There's a lot to drink from. I've got a lot of words that came out of my mouth today. Oh, but I hope that you're, 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 you're in the, I know you're in the business, but you're doing it right now, that you're allowing our human minds to, to comprehend what you just recorded through Stephen once again and guided him to say that we would then be guided to digest it and come to the right revelation, the truth, and not just stop there, but let it grow roots into our sanctification, our, the way we live day to day, knowing that Jesus himself is still at work. He's the ruler, and that we can trust this promise-keeping, righteous, amazing God you are. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.